So your outline should say Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series, then parentheses, GCF 19 and 20 version. And uh, that means I'm going to try very hard to finish this before the year 2020 is over. Um, and this is actually, if you notice, it says introduction A, B, and C. So we've done A and C. So last week in the, in the 10.30 service, we got through Roman numeral one, restoring biblical perspective. And we started on Roman numeral two, rediscovering the pattern. And then last week during the 9.30 service, we got through Roman numeral th uh, three. I talked about each of the 15 emphasis we'll be looking at. And I just talked about each of them for two or three minutes. And we actually got through all 15, which surprised me and a few other people. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so today, all we have to get through in the 930 service is this idea of rediscovering the pattern. So one of the things that um, I've always tried to do, and this, this kind of goes back to, uh, I think I got started really doing this in earnest in 1974, was uh, as we study the scriptures, looking at various versions of contemporary Christianity that would go by the label Bible-believing or evangelical, or in some cases reformed, or something like that, uh, and that uh, would say, we follow the Bible, and, and uh, asking ourselves, uh, how biblical is our, are our expressions of Christianity? And what would it take to get something that's more fruitful. Uh, we are in a, uh, a cultural collapse. If you study various cultures of the world, one of my favorite, uh, as you know, I have a master's degree in history. I read a lot of history, study a lot of history. And I mostly study about the rise and fall of civilizations. And so uh, when, uh, when a civilization is heading toward uh, a collapse, it first starts with a moral collapse. And we, in Western culture, which would include, you know, uh, most of Europe, the United States, and most of the former colonies of Great Britain, at least the, the ones that were settled largely by Europeans, we're in a time uh, of almost unprecedented moral collapse. Uh, there's probably a few cultures that you could look at in the history of the world and say there was a similar type of moral collapse. I have a book on my shelves called Are We Rome? That the, what the thesis is, he's trying to compare the moral collapse of the Roman Empire from the time of Jesus till the invasion of the Visigoths and, and when they sacked Rome in 509 A.D., uh, he's trying to compare the decline of, of Roman culture and morals with the collapse of American culture and morals. And it's an interesting comparison. So, um, you know, one of the things I'm always after is Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. 
And one of the clear things that we talked about last week, we looked at how the New Testament church turned the world upside down, and it was accused of turning the world upside down within less than a generation of the day of Pentecost, of, you know, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Think about that. The vast Roman Empire in the height of what was known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which was a period of time where Rome uh, ruled with no uh, serious challenges to its military authority over all of what is now England, France, Italy, uh, Macedonia, Greece, Croatia. My, my sister's in Croatia this morning. Um, uh, you know, on through to what is today uh, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Israel, Egypt, Libya, uh, all the way across the northern uh, part of Africa to what is today Morocco. Rome, Rome ruled all of that without any serious military threats, uh, some skirmishes on its boundaries, but not, not, none in the heart of its empire. And there are, is some similarity to America because America has basically had three attacks uh, from, from other um, countries uh, on our soil since the, our war for independence. So you think about it, the war for independence ended in 1883 and since that time, uh, of course, the British bombed Baltimore Harbor and, and Fort McKinley in uh, 1812. They invaded Louisiana and were driven back by uh, Stonewall Jackson. Uh, not Stonewall Jackson, I'm sorry. Uh, um, which is the Jackson I'm missing now? Uh, the guy who was president, Andrew Jackson. Uh, Sorry, got my got to get my Jackson straight. Um, so many of them. So um, uh, then we had, of course, uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, it, it, which uh, you know finally caused us to enter World War II. Uh, that was December seventh, nineteen forty-one. And we declared war on Japan uh, December 8th, and I believe the same day declared war on Germany and Italy and, and all, all three of the Axis allies. Um, and then, of course, we had the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But we really have enjoyed kind of an unprecedented uh, military prowess whereby we've not been uh, that susceptible to attacks on our own soil. And Rome had a similar situation for such a long time that uh, they did a very similar thing in, in the 1950s. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who was president at the time, proposed uh, this radical new idea called the federal highway system, which is why we have I-75 and I-71 and all that. And the ones that run north and south have odd numbers and the ones that run east and west have even numbers. And uh, this was, uh, you know, under the general welfare clause so that we could have freer trade between the states and so forth. And during the time, uh, starting about 130 years before Christ to about 250 years after Christ, Rome was built, building a similar, similar highway system. 
Of course, they didn't uh, drive cars on those roads, but they did have horses, chariots, walkers. And um, it became kind of a time that many people think when, when uh, Paul refers to Christ coming in the fullness of time, that part of that was that God had sovereignly ordained that there would be a, uh, a world situation which would allow for the spreading of the gospel in a faster way than any other time in history. So anyway, with that in mind, I, I, what we tried to look at last week when we talked about restoring some biblical perspective is we have a, a Christianity in our culture that's kind of a see you on Sunday afterthought in our life. It doesn't affect uh, every aspect of our lives like, like uh, biblical Christianity would. It certainly isn't challenging the culture in significant ways. Um, when, when the Bible talks about being salt, salt was used to stop corruption. If the church is salty in a particular culture, that culture's morals will be improving. Whereas we live in a time when, although through Christian influences, almost all the world has made slavery illegal, yet we have probably more slavery today than at any time in human history with human trafficking and so forth. Um, although we have all kinds of social welfare, uh, things that are supposed to allow for equal opportunity and so forth, we have a growing, growing gap between the educated and wealthy and the uneducated and, and culturally and, and economically deprived. So uh, we, we live in a time when uh, modern science, due to ultrasounds and other thing, think technologies like that, makes it clear that uh, life begins at conception and that it's a human baby growing in the womb Yet, we abort one-third of those. Um, so, um, in terms of, in terms of uh, what some people thought, you know, like when I was a kid, uh, 78 to 80% of Americans would have claimed to have been Christian. Probably half of those practiced their Christianity in significant ways, measurable, like going to church regularly, uh, let, having the having Christian values shape their lifestyle decisions and, and so forth. Uh, we had, of course, the sexual revolution of the 60s that led to the great uh, uh, divorce culture that, that started with no-fault divorce in 1971. We're now in the third generation of the divorce culture, and lots of people get hurt by that. Lots. Uh, half the ministry I do is uh, helping people that, that are overcoming all the hurt and, and so forth that they, that they have experienced because of their parents' bad marriages. Uh, so, it, you know, all, I'm not trying to pick on anyone. What I'm trying to just do is make sure we realize that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to stop corruption from, from growing. We're supposed to be the light of the world. You know what that means? That means people are supposed to come looking for us to figure out how to figure out economics, marriage, uh, how to raise kids, and so forth. Nobody thinks the church has significant answers in, in these things. 
so that's the kind of thing we looked at last week and, and so forth. And then we ended by making sure we challenged people to be like the Bereans, who the scripture says in Acts 17 were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. God, whenever God moves, as he is mightily in the earth today, a part of that move is among the people who are already God's people who need to be called back to covenant faithfulness in the fullness of God's counsel. And so we clearly have a Christianity that has been reductionist for about the last 190 years, and it has been increasingly less and less of the biblical message partly so that we can compete for members more because of our increasing division, right? And so uh, what this series is all about is uh, first is basically saying we need to do a rethink, okay? So that, again, that was last week's 1030 message. Uh, then we, we got a little bit into what we're going to cover today is the idea that there's biblical patterns. So one of the things, I grew up in a, uh, a church that was a bunch of ex-hippies, and it was the early 70s, and, and uh, most of the people in the church were super on fire for the Lord and very zealous, and, and it was, uh, you know, they carried their Bibles everywhere. It was not uncommon for people to read their Bibles uh, several hours to even eight hours a day, uh, you know, because... Um, the, the worship was intense. Uh, the evangelism was quite uh, organic and effective uh, and so forth. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, but, oh, and so one of the things that was kind of, that kind of rubbed off on me, because the Bible says, uh, he who dwells with the wise will be wise. The number one thing that will affect your Christianity is who you hang around with all the time. If you hang around people who are more zealous in the Lord, you'll become more zealous in the Lord. If you help hang around people who are more uh, lukewarm in the Lord, you'll become more lukewarm. If you hang around people who uh, study a lot, you'll probably start to value studying uh, and so forth. So I, uh, what rubbed off on me in my early Christianity, both from my parents and from the leaders of the church in Bowling Green, Ohio, that Catherine and I were part of, uh, although we knew each other, we didn't, uh, we, we did study together once in a while, but we didn't date until, oh, we'd known each other about seven years, actually, and we were doing the campus ministry together for a year or two before that. But one of the things that rubbed off on me was the idea of studying Scripture a lot. But what I didn't really understand for a year or two was that it's more than just how much you study, it's how much you get equipped to know what to look for. So there's reading, and there's reading comprehension. There's reading and, and assigning your meaning to it, and there's reading a novel and understanding what the author's trying to say. You know, one of, if you take a good literature class, one of the things you'll probably learn things like how to uh, look for the imagery the author's using and, uh, you know, look for various literary devices and so forth. But one of the things you're hopefully after is what, what is the author trying to say? And uh, so when it comes to scripture reading, 
there's a lot of different things that can help us get more out of the scripture than just saying, read your Bible more. So that's what, so where I want, so where I, what I want to emphasize in terms of that today is the fact that the Bible has a concept called, that I call the pattern. And that is for everything important in God, there are models and patterns. And what a lot of what's happened in, in the evangelical subculture is various patterns of what it, uh, to, to look for in scripture, uh, most people don't know they should be looking for patterns. So they might have, say, some elements of the gospel message, but they don't know how to look for all the elements of the gospel message. And one of the greatest strategies of modern evangelicalism is that uh, when it comes to this theological subject called ecclesiology, uh, there's an increasing movement of, of good pastors, teachers, authors who say evangelicalism doesn't have an ecclesiology. Now, and whether you like big words or not, people always go, I don't want to hear big words. They affect you whether you know what they mean or not. <laughs> so you might as well know what they mean so you can have it affect you less. So ecclesiology is just a fancy word that comes from uh, the word ecclesia, which is the New Testament word for church. And there was a translation of the scriptures made um, approximately 250, 290, somewhere B.C. or not like that. Um, 290 is probably more correct, to, to 270, uh, as a result of Alexander the Great and his resettling a number of uh, Jewish scribes and so forth in his two intellectual cities, one of which was in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, they made a translation of the scripture known as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation in the scripture. And why that's kind of important is when Jesus and the disciples are talking both in the Gospels and in, the, and in the epistles, they quote quite often, several times every New Testament chapter, they either quote from or allude to imageries or characters or types or stories from the Old Testament. And when they do so, they use uh, the Hebrew Masoretic Scripture sometimes, and they use the Greek Septuagint other times, and they seem to treat both of them as if they're equal in authority. So guess what? The word for ecclesia in the Greek New Testament is actually the word for congregation or assembly in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, my church, he's actually trying to say, which is going to be a very different church than Moses' church. And so just like Moses was told of God to make the tabernacle according to a pattern that God had shown him on the mountain, so we are to use the New Testament to find out what the, the church is supposed to be like, rather than just using church growth books and modern marketing methods. Does that make sense? Everyone tracking with me? Okay, so let's jump into Roman numeral 2b, the pattern of the tabernacle. Uh, boy, I really want to walk around. It's so hard not to walk around. Um, 
So in Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, the Lord, this I'm quoting from the New American Standard Bible. So if you're reading in the English Standard Version, it might have a word or two different, but they're both literal equivalence translations and both very good ones. So let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. That's God's purpose. God desires all through the Bible. It's very clear that one of God's desire is to dwell among his people. Then he says, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Then later at the end of the chapter, God repeats himself. Now, uh, God doesn't repeat himself for no reason at all. A lot of you complain Pastor Greg is always repeating himself. But there's a method to my madness because we learn by repetition. Right? So God repeats himself and he says to Moses again in verse 40, see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown you on the mountain. Now flip your page over just in case you think, well, that's the Old Testament. There's kind of this, uh, one of the paradigms of biblical interpretation that, that evangelical Christians follow is uh, a, series, a series of ideas that include antinomianism, neonasticism, some things that it will make sense as the, this series goes on to you. But in essence, they all add up to dismissing the Old Testament is not that important or irrelevant. How, how many people have been in churches where they hardly ever quote from the Old Testament? How many people think that it's not nearly as important to understand the Old Testament as it is the New Testament? Yeah. So, um, so just in case uh, you think that's, that that's the case, Hebrews 8.5 is actually quoting from Exodus 25, 8 and 9 for the very same purpose I just did. In other words, I stole their idea. <laughs> if you steal ideas from the Bible when you're doing Bible teaching, it's probably okay. <laughs> right? So it, it talks about those who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So what it's telling us is the tabernacle that Moses built and all the furniture and all the altars and all the arcs and all the lampstands and the wash basins and all the things that they were told to do in, in great detail were all a shadow and a copy of that greater tabernacle that is heaven. And God's desire has always been to bring the fullness of what, we, what goes on in heaven into a people that is his special treasure, his people for his own possession in the earth. That's his desire. His desire is that when someone would come in to get to know the lifestyle and the culture of Grace Christian Fellowship or any other church, they would feel like, wow, I touched a piece of heaven. They must wear lavender shirts and have no, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, 
So, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned. Now, that's an interesting word. You know, uh, I don't uh, warn Jonathan that there's lunch to eat after church today. <laughs> uh, of course, if I cooked it, I might need to warn you. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, we tell you there's f- food to eat after church, right? So the reason it uses the word warn is it wants you to understand this wasn't like something that God said lightly to Moses. He's saying, be careful that you don't do it according to your own way of doing it. Don't come up with a better idea. And if there's anything that characterizes modern American Christianity is that we haven't studied God's patterns for things like what is the church. We've just come up, applied Henry Ford's mass marketing principles to it, especially since the 1970s church growth movement and all the books thereof that taught us how to bring the McDonald's way of life of mass production so that we could serve billions and billions a uh, food that's lousy for you. (laughs) That's what we've turned the church into. We have bigger and bigger and bigger churches, and the bigger and bigger and bigger churches have actually wiped out most of the smaller inner city churches and so forth. I'm not necessarily grieved about that. Other than uh, what they've done it at the price of further reductions in the in the message and in the lifestyle so that we meet people all the time who've gone to Christian uh, high schools, Christian colleges, been to church for years, and have a deep, deep feeling that they know a lot about God, so much so that it's hard to help them grow, when in fact they know almost nothing about God And so you're stuck in a position of loving on them and caring for them and serving them and hoping that as they come for a year or two or three, eventually they'll start to see, wow, I've been going to church all my life and I don't know that much about the word of God and what he's up to in the earth. That's what the process we, that most of you have been on with us over the last seven, 10 or whatever years. So, again, Moses was warned to erect a tabernacle, not just any old way, but it says C. Whenever you see that small caps, that's the New American Standards way of the, the capital letters or quotes from the Old Testament. And he's quoting from Exodus 25, 8, and 9, and 40. See that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because we just read it on that last verse of the other page. In the book of Acts, during Stephen's great uh, famous speech, which was so well received, they gave him lots of stones afterwards. Uh, <laughs> they unfortunately delivered them a little hard. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and of course, they killed him. But, uh, you know, they don't always like the message or the messenger. But uh, uh, Stephen, in the middle of his great summary of Israel's history, he takes them back to Exodus chapter 25, and he says, Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed exactly in accordance with the plan shown to Moses by God. Now, that's the New Living Translation. 
but the word uh, plan in the New Living Translation is the word pattern in the New American Standard Bible. So believe it or not, when you're reading the Bible, you're supposed to be looking for patterns. Now, just to make this even more clear, what we do today, I have, I have heard uh, more sermons on the first 11 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 than almost any other portion of Scripture, which tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, and so forth. And then it goes on to say that Christ made us alive and we've been raised up with him in heavenly places and so forth. And that by grace we've been saved. And it ends in verse 10 with we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and so forth. And all of that is interpreted as applying to the individual who's listening. That is, you know, the sermon is given to Tiffany Hager for Tiffany Hager. But if you keep reading verses 11 and through 22, tell us that each of us individuals before that process that, that we're talking about of coming to Christ in Ephesians 2, 1 through 11 happened, that each of us was uh, dead in our trespasses and sins. And it goes on to say, we were strangers from the covenants of promise and we were a people that was not a people and we were without hope and without God in the world, and that through those things that he talked about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 11, he has brought us into a family. And then he uses several word pictures of the church. Ephesians has about eight word pictures of the church. Uh, if you want a little hint of studying Ephesians, uh, think of it this way. Ephesians is about the church of Jesus Christ where Colossians is about the Christ of the church. So if you just applied that little flay, those, that little saying, Ephesians is about the church of Jesus Christ, and then read Ephesians again. And you'll see all sorts of teaching about the, the corporate life of Christians. And, and the fact is, no one in the natural the natural, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 44, first the natural, then the spiritual, the natural is given to us to give us clues about how God's kingdom works in the spiritual. And there was nobody in this room that was born on a desert island without any people involved. You're born into a family. And Ephesians is trying to make it clear that today's radically individualistic Christianity, as some are calling it, is not scriptural. People wonder why they can't get their marriage together, why they can't overcome this or that particular besetting sin, why they can't get delivered from their various uh, fears or emotional troubles or whatever, because you were never meant to do it by yourself.
You know, we don't even have the kinds of families where you can go to your dad and talk about uh, fear or sex or whatever. But we're, we're supposed to be uh, the ultimate not dysfunctional family. So I like, and now the truth is, when we come to Christ, uh, we're full of dysfunction at first. But as we grow in Christ, we should become increasingly that for which he apprehended us to be like the fullness of Christ. Not just individually, but we're supposed to have a lifestyle that says, you want to know what Jesus is like? Come over to the Red House and see how us sisters relate to each other. Come over to Sydney's house and see the brothers' morning prayer meeting or whatever. <laughs> see how John Gray treats his wife and how he raises his kids. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he went so far as to tell Timothy that if you do the things you've observed and seen in me, the God of peace will dwell with you. So I, I, I want to put that challenge before all of us to say, both individually and, and as our households, can we say, if you want to know what God's like, hang out at our house. We should be able to say that. If you want to know what God's like, come over and watch football on Saturdays. <laughs> Logan thinks God's a Michigan's fan. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Logan's in good spirits this morning. Logan whooped up on, uh, or uh, not Logan, uh, Michigan whooped up on Notre Dame last night. What, 40, 48 to 7 or 14? The second string of Notre Dame scored a touchdown toward the end of the game. Anyway, so Ephesians 2.19 through 22 uh, ends the, the passage I've been talking about for a while by saying this. So then, you, that's you, put, you know, all the other yous about personal salvation and my sins being forgiven and my, I'm seated with Christ. We, we do all that to ourselves individually do this to yourself corporately you are no longer a stranger or an alien now some of us are stranger than others <laughs> but you're not no i'm just kidding that's just, no extra charge for the did you know that kanye west used my job i never read the book of job job because it's job uh, i thought i said job he stole my joke you know kanye west has become a christian now so he quoted my Job joke, which I'm sure I didn't make it up originally. I'm sure I stole that from somebody 40 years ago or whatever. <laughs> Probably no one's worn it out as much as me. But um, so then you're no longer uh, that strange or alien, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. And you're of God's household. Now, in the Bible, the household is a family but it's an extended family. It's an economic unit. It's a way of life. You know, I, my wife and I have owned a financing company for, I don't know, 16 years now. We don't do much with it in the last five years. It's sort of dormant. 
But uh, from back when I used to work for someone else and then in our financing company, we financed a lot of German Baptists, Mennonites, and especially Amish. And the Amish have a certain kind of way of life. Um, But when you ask an Amish man, are you a business? He will always say, no, I'm not a business. I'm just, you know, Amos Bordtrager. And I'll say, so then because of what a business really is, I'll say, Amos, do you have chickens? Uh Uh-huh. Do you sell any of the eggs? Oh, of course. Do you raise produce? Uh Uh-huh. Do you sell the produce? Uh, Yeah. Do you have a sawmill out back? Do you sell the board feet lumber to a pallet shop or something? And, And before long, I've established you're actually a business. You're just thinking it's a family business. Right? And so what this, what this is actually saying is we're, we're supposed to be a way of life that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, which is not this uh, brick edifice uh, that needs a new roof and so forth, it's these people over here with these people over here. That's the building. That's where the Spirit of God dwells. It dwells in Abigail, in Samuel. For, we got all, first, second, third, and fourth Samuel here. Uh, <laughs> see, the Bible only has two Samuels. We're, we're doing pretty good. Uh, in whom the whole building being fitted together... Now, you know how God fits people together? Kind of like you would take the rough edges off a rock. (laughs) It's called a single household. (laughs) It's called a discipleship relationship. It's it's called working together on uh, whatever project you're working together. And it keeps, you keep banging together till it fits right. Whom, Whom the whole building is being fitted together. And it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 11 is about. Although it's never preached in American churches today, it's preached a radically individualistic gospel. But, you know, one brick isn't going to do very much toward building a building. And the world is waiting to see a building that race doesn't matter. A world is wa- wanting, the world is waiting to see a building that age doesn't matter. Uh, the world is waiting to see a building that socioeconomic and educational statuses don't matter. But what matters is Jesus Christ, the common denominator in a, among a people who love and sacrifice and serve one another. That's what the world is waiting to see. The world knows that less than 7% of our American churches are integrated. The world knows that the, the government can legislate that blacks and whites go to the same schools, they work in the same banks, they work for the same county. <laughs> but when they have the choice, they don't want to be together, so they have separate black and separate white churches. 
And the world is, is standing back and saying, you're fooling yourself. You don't believe your message because you can't love each other in Christ unless the people you're loving are, are like you. I would challenge us in Grace Christian Fellowship, who do you hang out with even in the pews after church? You know, I often see all the single ladies together, all the single guys together. You know what? Go sit by somebody who's different than you. Have lunch today with somebody who you don't know that very well. Because that's how you start to, to do what the world is waiting to see. They don't care about our tracks and our ideas because we abort our babies at the same rate that the world does. Do you know that, that abortion is, is very high among evangelicals? Some people think it's higher than it is among the non-churched world. Why? Because there's still, in some evangelical circles, there's still some shame for a young lady that's pregnant. Now, what, the, what that says is we go to church, but we don't really live or believe our message. When someone makes a mistake and is in trouble, do we, do we take them under our wing? You know, that's why the, the, the Miami Valley Women's Center approach to, to that issue I, is the most redemptive approach in my heart and mind. All right, moving on, Christ is, is also our pattern, and he tells us that. In John 13, after he washes the disciples' feet. Now, just so you know, I'm sure all of you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke concentrate on different aspects of the Passover supper. They concentrate on Jesus giving us the Lord's Supper, on Jesus predicting that uh, Simon Peter will deny him and be restored and that Judas will betray him. John covers none of that but he covers Jesus' speech about how his ministry is going to continue through his friends. And he says, I'm not gonna call you slaves anymore, I'm gonna call you a friend because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. A friend belongs to the family, is what he's saying. And he's about the family business. And I'm gonna give you this powerful thing called the Holy Spirit. And before you get this powerful thing called the Holy Spirit, you better wash one another's feet. That's what John 13, 14, 15, 16, that's why it starts with his washing their feet because he's saying if you're going to be entrusted the most powerful thing in the universe, the person in power of the baptism in the spirit, you better have a, not be using it to support your own ministry and to build a, some TV empire, and, but you better use it to serve one another. So I wish I could go into more. There's some scriptures there, John 13, 1 Peter 2, that basically tell us that Christ is our pattern. So uh, just as a takeaway for today, models, example, all those are another, another way of saying pattern. So when Paul says, be an imitator of me, he's saying, I'm the pattern. And as I imitate Jesus, imitate me. And that's actually what leadership's about. If you're one of the campus ministry leaders or whatever, you should say, uh, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. 
this is a pretty good way to live. Learn to live how we're living. So uh, in this series, last week we went over the 15 emphasis, but what we're going to be doing, uh, I'm going to today in the 1030 service, I'm going to do the first emphasis called Loving God. And uh, I did that for five weeks at, at Wright State. And uh, at Wright State, we had, uh, you know, you can get away with some, th some things in a campus ministry that you can't do in a church. So we had one and a half to two hour messages. So what I'm going to do today is give you what I can in 45 minutes about loving God. But I want you to understand that that's just going to be an introduction to the topic. And you should take the idea of loving God and look for that idea in all of Scripture. Because as we're going to see in a, when we start the 1030 message in about a half an hour after we worship for a while, uh, we're going to see that we use the word love in our culture for all sorts of things. Like, I love my dog. I love my schnauzer. I love my McDonald's. I love my car. And I love Jesus. <laughs> so that becomes a little bit of a problem. You know, like I love my car and I love my Jesus. Oh, brother. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about what the Bible actually means by what it means to love God. Amen. <laughs> 